Jesus Christ. And now this pathway being open between heaven and earth, the angels of your ministering will, the agents where, who accomplish your holy decree, now are personally involved in all that you would seek to accomplish on this earth and specifically with your people. The Holy Spirit has descended to our hearts through the gospel. And Jesus Christ, because of his death on Calvary, has turned our hearts into a home, a residence for the Almighty. And this Spirit, Lord, we thank you for giving us and granting us so that we might turn from sin and turn towards you. To grant unto us a clean heart, the desire to be sanctified, made pure, consecrated, set apart, and more like Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you have convicted us of our sin, caused us to cry out for our Savior, and turned us to the only way of truth and life, the cross of our Lord. We thank you furthermore that you grant to us the mission to proclaim these truths to all whom you lead us to reach, and our families, through our church, and our community, and beyond. And now as we turn to your holy word, which documents in such great and glorious detail every aspect of your holy will and plan to accomplish this miraculous truth, I pray that our hearts would be moved to love you all the more and our faith would be strengthened to be that much more bold and that our application of your scripture would be sharpened that we might be more faithful and obedient to you and that through all these means the Spirit might advance the cause of Jesus Christ grow his kingdom through his confessing church and add by the preaching of the gospel more to our numbers that the glory of God might encircle this earth as the waters cover the sea so that upon Christ our Lord's return there might be millions, however many you've planned and ordained of the elect raising their hands in glorious welcome for the reunion of the one who has died to save them now bringing to earth in full consummate form his kingdom ushering in the glorious reality of perfect forever fellowship and a new earth and a new heaven that will forever exist as the habitation for the holy and the fellowship of the saints because of the work of Jesus Christ who has died, buried, resurrected, ascended, ruling, reigning, conquering and advancing his kingdom. In Jesus' holy name we pray that you would attach these words to our heart this day. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we have the glorious privilege and just the precious gift of God's holy scriptures and time to consider them together today. Let us do this today by turning our attention to Genesis 29. We turn a page in the chapter of Jacob's life from the revelation of heaven's staircase touching ground at Bethel to the continuation of his journey north to Paddan Aram to Haran, the land of his forefathers, in search of a covenant bride. This is how our passage opens in Genesis 29. We'll consider verses 1 through 20 in our message today. The title of today's sermon is Woman at the Well. Jacob meets a lady at the well, a woman at the well, in this passage, and that should remind you of another woman at another well to come, and we'll close with a connection to the New Testament in our message today. And these aren't the only two points in Scripture you might recall as well, where a wife or a bride is found at a location such as this. Keep those points in mind. There are more evidence of what we described last week. And I'll just go over this purpose statement, a purpose statement for a sound biblical expository preaching for you, because I seek to establish this as a value in my own declaration, and it's something to hold any good preacher, any preacher accountable to. What is one of the purposes of the pulpit? Well, it is, in part, I submit, to discover and to disclose the glories of redemption, woven in thematic harmony throughout the scriptures, testifying to the genius of what can only rightly be understood as the very Word of God. To discover and to disclose the glories of God's plan of salvation to prove to you that this is God's Word. We mentioned this and how rich and deep the well of heaven's staircase touching earth, that dream that Jacob has to reveal to us the glories of God's plan of salvation tied all the way through Scripture, this sort of fabric of his revelation that is woven through this multi-generational, 
thousands of year account of God's involvement directly with his people and with history. And today we have even more still. So what a glorious journey we have in going through the scriptures to discover this gold and these gemstones of his revealed truth. So just to whet your appetite for today's message called Woman at the Well. My aim is to feature the sovereign hand of God as the author of Jacob's journey. We see that God has planned Jacob's way, and we see this as quite obvious as the events unfold. With that introduction and your scriptures open as you're able, would you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of God's word today? Let us consider these words. Genesis 29, 1 through 20, here is the word of God. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east, and he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, uh, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep, he said. Behold, it is still high day. Is it not time for the livestock to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. Verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban's mother's brother, Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone, my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall be your wages? Or what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In our passage today, Jacob continues his own journey of faith. Remember his grandfather Abraham was called from Haran on a journey of faith. Now, Jacob, two generations later, is called retracing his grandfather's footsteps, so to speak, on his own journey of trusting in the Lord. Retracing the steps of Abraham, he goes back to Haran in search of a bride, a covenant bride. This is absolutely necessary. This relationship, this family, will serve to further the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If these events that we've read of today do not take place, there is no salvation for you and me. What little Jacob had to his name, I'll remind you, was poured out as an offering. Remember Jacob's pillar in the chapter before? He stands it up after this revelation encounter with Yahweh himself. He says, this is none other than the house of God. He took the stone that he had put under his head, verse 18, set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. History records that oil can be an expensive commodity. And we find that Jacob doesn't have much to his name. And I think we can infer that what little he had was poured out in that offering at Jacob's pillar to commemorate that great dream. This was his first tithe at Bethel. This was his worshipful obedience. This marked his conversion, if you will, to be a worshiper of the one true God of his father and his grandfather. Having poured out, therefore, this sacrifice at Bethel, moved by this encounter with the God of his fathers, he travels north 
in faith, boasting nothing he could give as a bride price, save his own future labor. Jacob has nothing in his pockets, really nothing to his name that he can offer in exchange, which would have been the cultural expectation for a bride, a dowry. So here he is. According to now a little further context for you, according to scholarly efforts to connect the dots of Scripture and narrow down the timeline, I'll give you some estimates of Jacob's years and kind of when things unfolded. He was likely, scholars surmise, in his late 50s, perhaps 57-ish, when he journeys, finally, late bloomer, to find a wife, right? It's getting late, and this reminds you, does it not, of others in his family who have drugged their feet in pursuing faithfulness to the covenant. Again, if Jacob doesn't marry, the line of the Messiah is jeopardized. So he continues in his late 50s, presumably to his family's former residence, which remains home to his uncle Laban's family and flocks. Jacob will go on <clears throat> to sire his first child around, we assume, 64 to 76, somewhere in there. Today we call that a senior citizen. Around those years of age, his first of 12 children are born. Joseph, we remember him, will be born likely in his 90, I think it's around, the scriptures might specifically say, I don't recall off the top, in his 91st year. Jacob's 91 when Joseph is born. Jacob likely leaves Haran a few years after Joseph's birth, having stayed there for 40 years. And this time is a little bit disputed, but if you put the pieces together, we're getting a general idea of the timeline. Now, after he leaves, on his way, Benjamin is born, his second favorite son, after all, the child of Rachel, the beloved wife. And he's about, just to sum it up, 130 years old, that is, Jacob is 130 when he takes refuge in Egypt, and there he dies. And his bones are returned by Joseph in a contingency to be buried, as I recall, in that same cave in Machpelah uh, next to his grandfather and so forth. So given this biography, it's a real quick snapshot of the age of Jacob and these significant events. Given this biography, every phase of Jacob's life would present a challenge to Jacob's newfound faith at Bethel. Was it easy to believe the promises of God given the trials that he would encounter? No, not at all. And so Jacob's faith, however faltering, is impressive nevertheless because he is faced with such a difficult set of circumstances. Nevertheless, as Jacob leaves, even though he's on this challenging journey and all the events that would accompany, he has the word of God to cling to along the way. Is this word sufficient? The answer in Jacob's testimony, and of course in all the scripture, is absolutely yes. Right there is an application for you and me. No matter the challenges in our own biography, and I know a lot of us, in spite of how difficult they are, probably we would say by some measure easier than Jacob. I mean, how many of you could raise your hand that you had 12 kids in your 70s on into almost 100, you know? That's nine kids that our family has in our younger years is challenging enough as it is, let alone trying to negotiate the tensions between two wives and your 40 years away from your home country and you don't know anything about the wilderness. You're a mama's boy tent dweller. You have no skills to provide for you. And all of these things conspire to give Jacob a really challenging life. Nevertheless, the word of God was sufficient for him to cling to. What word, you might say? Turn back with me to chapter 28 and let's uh, remind ourselves of two examples. In verse 2, his father had said, Moved so by the Spirit, proclaiming this blessing over Jacob. Isaac says, Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty, El Shaddai, bless you and make you faithful and multiply you, and may you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus, says in verse 5, Isaac sent Jacob away. But that wasn't all. Turn over a few verses. The Lord himself appears to Jacob in a dream, and this is what he says. 
Verse 13, Behold, the Lord stood above it, that is, the staircase we recall in our last message, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. This is Yahweh, the Lord himself speaking, the God of his father, the God of his grandfather, the God of Abraham, Isaac, is now revealing himself as the God of Jacob. Jacob will confess the same, and he's reiterating the promises. This is God's word directly revealed to his covenant son. Verse 14, he continues, Your offspring, meaning your children, of course, shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Pay particular attention to verse 15. We've identified this using the language of other commentators as the Emmanuel principle. Real quick before we read the verse. Kids, what does Emmanuel mean? Can you shout it out? What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. us, Thank you. Verse 15. Yahweh says to Jacob, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. In short, I am Emmanuel. I am God with you. I will fulfill my promises. You will come back to this land, even though we find in his biography likely was estranged from it for 40 years. Nevertheless, this word was sufficient. So as God himself has confessed over Jacob these promises, we find in our text today this promise prevails. God fulfills his word in the face of monumental challenges, And this will be a theme the rest of Jacob's days. But what does it testify to us, the reader? Remember Moses, he's the author. He's constantly saying, behold, in these texts, behold, behold. And sometimes it's the Lord saying to Jacob, behold. But a lot of times it's Moses saying to you and I, the reader, behold, pay attention. Look at this. This pertains to your experience. Well, we can behold, can we not? That in spite of these challenge, the rest of Jacob's days testify to the sovereignty and steadfast love of El Shaddai. That is to say, the sovereignty and steadfast love of God Almighty. That's a major theme on into chapter 29 as we follow Jacob's journey north, 400 miles, by the way, as history and geography record for us to find a bride. Let me give you a heading. We'll consider three main points today. Heading is this. God's keeping presence is witnessed in the following. Keeping presence is just a summary of this promise that I will keep you, uh, I will be with you and will keep you wherever you go. So God's keeping, that means protecting, and His presence, that means His fellowship, attending Jacob's way. God's keeping presence is witnessed in the following. Number one, verses one through four, where Jacob travels. And number two, God's keeping presence is witnessed in who he meets. And number three, what he prefigures, that is, the experiences experiences of Jacob that look forward to the experiences of his son, 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 and so forth, all the way to Jesus Christ. First of all, God's keeping presence is witnessed in where Jacob travels. Another way to say it, proof that God is with Jacob and proof that he is guarding his way comes by way of where we find him ending up in chapter 29. It's quite extraordinary. Verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Let's pause there. Jacob's destination. Well, he knows he's supposed to go to Paddan Aran, to Haran, the place of his, you know, so just to remind you, Abraham's brother Nahor uh, had a son, Bethuel. Bethuel had a son, Laban. So this is kind of the generations parallel to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nahor, Bethuel, and Laban, and then Laban's daughter, Jacob meets at the well is Rachel. He had two daughters, Rachel and Leah. So these are the kind of the two families separated by 400 miles. And Jacob is returning to find a bride from his tribe, right? So this is his destination. Yet we're reminded, as I mentioned briefly before, that this is a soft guy. Uh, He doesn't know his way around the wilderness. Uh, Isaac and I were chatting after a former message and he said, you know, uh, isn't it isn't some of what is Esau was good at a virtue, and to that I would agree. In other words, Esau could protect himself, fend for himself. He could get a meal out the wilderness. He was a good hunter. He was adept with weapons. 
And definitely there's a dominion call that man has to steward well and to take advantage of the talents and opportunities provided him to be a man who can fend for himself, protect his family, and provide for them. Well, and Jacob, kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, was a mama's boy, liked to dwell in tents, and was not cut out for this journey. But Jacob also had met God himself at Bethel, and we're beginning to see repentance. Now Esau relied on those things I mentioned before as a point of identity. He trusted in the strength of his arm and the sharpness of his arrows to accomplish for him his will. Jacob trusted in his wits and his conniving and his psychological manipulation, his trickery and his scheming in order to get himself the covenant blessing. Both brothers were sinful in this way, but one brother repented. And we're seeing evidence of Jacob's repentance as he heads out. And we're seeing evidence of God's keeping presence along the way because we have this soft, can't do anything to take care of himself in the wilderness. Mama's boy, uh, you know, out there, 400 miles on foot without, you know, the ability or experience to take care of himself and with little to his name by way of money, flat broke, heading north. And here we find him. And his journey was fraught with a lot of danger. The language indicates this. Says he came to the land of the people of the east. Well, if he's heading north, why does this, why did the scriptures use this term east? Well, one possible explanation is that easterly peoples represent exiles. Uh, we gain this from all the way back to chapter 25, verse 5. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. This eastward direction is a direction of banishment and exile. What direction did Adam and Eve flee the Garden of Eden? Eastward. Um, and then we see the sons of Keturah heading east. And then we also see in Noah's legacy, Japheth, you know, the, his legacy was the coastlands. Suffice it to say that the language indicates it's a little vague, but we know from the way Moses records this and from the context of greater scripture, the language indicates the traveler has every reason to assume he has entered a strange and dangerous land. So this is Moses saying by these references that Jacob is in a strange and dangerous land. And he's not cut out for the trip. Nevertheless, the keeping presence of God is witnessed in where he ends up. And God's mercy is really profound. Verse 2, as he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And then kind of narrating the situation, verse 3, Moses records when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. This was likely a protected water source, so you wouldn't want your sand, the sand of the storms and whatever to blow in. And you wouldn't want just anybody coming and contaminating the well or depleting the resources. So there's sort of a shepherding community, presumably, that, bound to, you know, that were in agreement to use this well in the wilderness. And this is where Jacob ends up. He's in a place that he presumes, that we presume is strange and dangerous. He's not cut out for the trip. Language indicates that the situation is geographically perilous. And Moses is evoking this exile language. You never know what you're going to encounter when you go this far. And Jacob's not equipped for the journey. But what's the first thing he lights upon as he heads north, at least as it's recorded in the text? A well in the wilderness. What are wells in the wilderness in Scripture? Well, they're places of refuge. They're an oasis. They're an island. They're a refuge. They're a place where man can get his resources. And they represent the life-giving source of water to sustain you in the difficulty of your journey. And all through Scripture, wellsprings of water have profound spiritual significance. And so this is signified in our text. This is an enduring theme throughout the covenant, throughout all of covenant history. Just when man thinks he's at the end of his rope, when we are lost in our wilderness of sin, is it not the case that we are led by the Spirit in salvation to Jesus Christ, who is a wellspring of living water in the wilderness? And we find in our dying gasp of sin that we have been refreshed by that supply 
even though we didn't deserve it, we weren't cut out for the journey and it's nothing of our merit that got us there. This is the picture of a wellspring in the wilderness. How about the children of Israel? They weren't equipped for the journey as they left Egypt, were they? They were a slave people with a slave mentality. 400 years conscripted hard labor to Pharaoh's whatever, pyramid building enterprises and the like. And yet here they go in the wilderness. They're going to be there for a long time, 40 years wandering in circles. But what does God provide? He provides a wellspring in the wilderness. He also provides in that journey evidence, witness of his keeping presence to both guard and to guide. And he evidences this. This is obvious in the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. But many years before those you know, children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, uh, safe in God's keeping presence, they had a forefather who went before Jacob who experienced that same keeping presence. And it was witnessed in the fact that God led him to a well in his wanderings. This is also the legacy of Hagar. I love Hagar's example of this. We've referenced it before. To refresh your memory, though, turn back with me to Genesis 16. Hagar was the bride of secondary status, wasn't she? A concubine, a backup plan by man's estimation and even by the attitude of her mistress, Sarai. She often found herself at the short end of the stick, despised, rejected, exiled, banished. Nevertheless, Sarah deals harshly with her in 16.6, but what does the Lord do? The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. This is the legacy of Hagar. The spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitudes. And the angel of the Lord said to her, notice how many times the angel of the Lord said to her, this is a revelation, the Lord himself in this angel form is speaking to this outcast in the wilderness at a spring which represents a source of life. Behold, prophecy, you're pregnant and shall bear a son. You should call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction Later, she commemorates this place, verse 13. First, she identifies the speaker. She called the name of the Lord, uh, Yahweh, that is, who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. Kids, you remember this? And forever that spring, or at least the uh, future generations, that spring where God uh, saw her and spoke to her was named accordingly, Bir Lahai Roy. Uh, kids, uh, for extra points, does anyone know what that means, Bir Lahai Roy? Oh, God sees me? Very close. Well of the living God who sees me. Well of the living God who sees me. It lies between Kadesh and Bered, it says in the text. So this well in the wilderness, accompanied by the keeping presence of God, was the experience of Hagar. She said, this is the God who sees me. I thought I was banished alone. I thought I was going to be a victim to the elements. A single mother estranged from the encampment of her mistress, and her husband as a concubine, and this little one off in the desert. And suddenly, in her wanderings, a spring of water appears in the wilderness. And this isn't the first time, it happens, or isn't the last time. It happens again, I believe in chapter 21, yes, 17 through 19. So there, thereby, Hagar, in our text, was twice sustained by springs in the desert. She commemorated this uh, event by naming the Lord, the one who sees me, and the well became known as the well of the living God who sees me because according to the revelation she received, God is a God of seeing. Has God provided you a wellspring in the wilderness? How about your journey? You know, it's easy to draw application and personalize this, is it not? As we said before, we can all relate in some, at least in some degree, at least principally to trials. Do you have faith? according to the testimony of your spiritual lineage who went before you, that no matter how trying and dark and difficult the hour in which we live is, that God will provide a wellspring in your wanderings, in your wilderness? Now, this assurance is based on you meeting God in the first place. Yahweh, Jacob met him at Bethel. Before that, he was a lying, conniving, you know, thieving, uh, whatever, schemer. God met him at Bethel. 
And now he had the word of God both proclaimed by his dad externally and internally revealed to him. Hagar the same way. She was just a concubine, a backup plan to try to fulfill the covenant. Didn't go so well and she's banished to the wilderness. And the Lord meets her. And she has an eye-opening encounter. She meets uh, the God of the universe, the God of all seeing, the God who provides a wellspring of life in the wilderness of sin. And she acknowledges his sovereignty, just like Jacob. Truly, Jacob says, this is Bethel, the house of God. He stands up a pillar. He pours out his anointing offering. And he says, this place shall forever be commemorated as the house of God. Have you met Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you repented of your sins? Have you found the gospel? Have you found the truth that Jesus was died and buried because of your sin? Have you found that to be a wellspring of spiritual water in your own soul that gives you hope? It's the first place of meeting the sovereign God that every Christian must encounter in order to realize that God's keeping presence is witnessed both in their salvation and because God has provided you eternal life, he will provide you everything you need pertaining to life and godliness along the way. This is the message Hagar teaches us, Jacob teaches us, Abraham teaches us, Jesus teaches us, and I pray it's a lesson that you've learned yourself. If not, repent and turn to the God of seeing and realize Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture. Realize at the cross is the true beer, Laharoi, the well of the living God who sees you, who knows you, and has provided a way of salvation. For those of you that are believers in the sound of my voice, draw from this proclamation great encouragement that the well of the living God who sees you that was dug at the point of your salvation, that that well is sufficient to carry you through, that no matter the trial and the difficulty that you face, God's keeping presence is witnessed in your salvation. You have every reason to believe it will continue until you ascend up that staircase, as it were, unto glory, because Jesus was resurrected, and so will you be if you are in him. Next, Jacob meets shepherds from Haran. This is just incredible. Turn back with, to Genesis 29. Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east, and he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. I'll go on to get this piece of context we've read already, then Jacob begins to interact with his shepherds. Verse 4, he says to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. What? Haran? That's where I'm going. And remember, this is Jacob. He doesn't have a compass. He doesn't have Siri. He doesn't have, you know, the navigation devices that we lean on. He's wandering by himself with no experience relatively north looking at the stars and trusting his God to lead him on the way and protect him all the while. And the first place we find him in our text, he's at a well in a wilderness, greeted by shepherds who are from Haran. And we go on to see they know his father-in-law personally, <clears throat> future father-in-law. They know the house of Nahor, <clears throat> Bethuel, Laban, and so forth. Despite the odds, Jacob encounters a peaceful community of shepherds who don't basically kill him, which would have been easy to do, given who Jacob was. Get away from this well-protected well. You know, he can't threaten our water. They could easily have done that, but no, this is a peaceful community of shepherds who interact with him in a gracious way and help him with directions. You ever stop for directions? Hey, how do I get to the subway or whatever? And people say, well, you just three blocks down and to your right. Similarly, Jacob's like, how do I get to the house of Nahor? And they're like, wow, three blocks down to your right. We know the dude. Pretty incredible. This is evidence of God's keeping presence, and it was witnessed in Jacob arriving at this place despite the odds, encountering these peaceful shepherds who dwell in the land of his people and know his family personally. Secondly, major point, that was where Jacob traveled. God's keeping presence is witnessed further in who he meets. Building on this point I just mentioned, these are neighbors of Nahor, these shepherds. God led this tent dweller, Jacob, 400 miles on foot to the doorstep of his uncle's home. 
Turn back with me to Genesis 24 because we're starting to see a parallel. I just want to remind you of it. In Genesis 24, Abraham was old and well advanced in years. And God had blessed Abraham in all things. But there was one important detail that hadn't been attended to. The oldest of his household, the covenant son, Isaac, as of yet, did not have a bride. So he commissions his servant, right? We surmise he's Eleazar. And this trusted servant is sent to look for a bride for Isaac. And where does he go? But same general location. Goes back to the house in Haran, household in Haran. Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there, the Lord your God, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring. I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. In other words, Jacob promises his servant that God's keeping presence will attend him on this journey. Verse 10, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts, right? And, said, and then he comes. Where does he arrive? In verse 11, he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening. Another man, another well, another search for a covenant bride. This, of course, is uh, Jacob's dad, how he found his wife to be by way of his father's servant. And then <clears throat> this servant begins to pray. Verse 12, he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. And then you guys recall the story, do you not, of how Rebekah was identified? The man's prayed, you know, let the lady who drops down the jar and says, we'll give you water and your camels also, let her be Mrs. Wright, the right one for my master's son. And of course, his prayer was answered. Later, the servant worships the Lord. The man bowed his head, verse 26, and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. Overwhelmed with worship because of this evidence of God's presence, his keeping presence, attending his way. And now Jacob, same journey, similar mission. God has led him. North, and we compare this to this prior journey by Abraham's servant. And let me submit this. Now, commentators have said the following. I was talking with Dave about this before church, and it just kind of struck me. If you read some of the commentaries, they kind of draw a contrast between Abraham's servant and Jacob's quest for a bride. They tend to show that, yeah, Abraham's servant's way was attended by prayer. He really cried out and was self-conscious that he needed God's direction in order to find the right bride. Meanwhile, Jacob, on the other hand, just stumbles into this lovely shepherdess and there's no prayer recorded. And so one was a man of prayer, the other appears not so much. That might be a conclusion you could draw, but let me submit the following. You could also look at our text today as another answer to Abraham's servant prayer, servant's prayer all the way back two generations ago. In other words, you never know what the plans and purposes of God are connected to your heart cry that he may be glorified in your faithfulness to him. Recently, we've been discussing in our church a renewed and, and a more uh, solid commitment, accountability to pray. And if we look at Jacob finding his bride at this wellspring as an answer two generations later to the prayer of Abraham's servant, that the messianic line would continue by supplying a covenant bride for the covenant son, we have a good example of how big our God is and how small our thinking sometimes is. We can only underestimate the power and sovereignty and steadfast love of our God. Let your faith be expanded. These stories are recorded in part to encourage you that a simple step of faithful obedience like beginning to follow God's will in prayer might yield fruit two generations later that you won't be alive to witness, but you will see from glory's vantage point one day and will advance the purposes of God multi-generationally. Pretty incredible. So these neighbors of Nahor, they interact with Jacob <clears throat> and they tell him that, yeah, we know your family. And this again is incredible. 
Like he lives just up the street, you know, we can imagine putting ourselves in the shoes and uh, our kids are on the same soccer team if they played it back then, right? So he said to them, do you know Laban? This is back in 29.5, the son of Nahor. They said, yeah, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And then they say, see, Rachel's daughter's coming with the sheep. Uh, if you were to write this as a movie, it'd kind of be too obvious, right? I mean, a, a, a movie that's sort of a compelling plot line has some twists and turns and some uncertainty. But in this plot line, it's like boom, 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 boom. Uh, uh, walk 400 miles, meet some shepherds that know your future father-in-law. Oh, and by the way, there's your future bride coming. It's her daughter right there. And she's really lovely. She's a pretty gal. Here she is. It's just really amazing. But this is God's keeping presence that we witness in these events. This is testified to by who Jacob meets. He meets the neighbors of Nahor, and he meets a lovely shepherdess. <clears throat> I couldn't get it out of my head. I just like, what a lovely shepherdess. The only thing I could think of is uh, Toy Story, Little Bo Peep. Uh, and she's a lovely shepherdess and ended up in a relationship with Woody. I have no idea why I referenced that. <laughs> but nevertheless, imagine uh, Jacob in Woody's shoes and his little Bo Peep just comes right up to the well. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. So Jacob's starting to reason with the shepherds there. And I think he just wants some time alone um, with this gal. And so he's like, she's kind of in the distance coming and he's like, uh, shouldn't you guys just pretty much be watering your sheep and kind of move along? And, oh, we can't until all the flocks are gathered. See, we have this agreement, they say. You know, probably none the wiser. <laughs> Pretty gal, guys looking for a bride, a bunch of third wheels. Uh, the stone, and they say, well, you we just got to stick around. And then once we all get together, we can kind of roll the stone away. And that's the way it works around here. Then we water the sheep. It's almost a humorous set of a situation. Nevertheless, there's something spiritually significant here. We're seeing the repentance of a one-time mama's boy, non-adventurer, soft man uh, that lived in tents and didn't care to travel or didn't care to be faithful to the covenant. This has changed now. God has given him a heart of covenant faithfulness, and this pertains to his immediate attraction to this lady. It's not just because of her beauty, but also Jacob is committed to the covenant. So committed that this stone that normally presumably takes two, three, four shepherds to move, Jacob, you know, this weakling dude that lived in tents his whole life, moves it all by himself. It's amazing. So he summons some extraordinary strength, perhaps by the will of God, or perhaps that some of you guys can relate to this. If you're married, those wooing stages, I call them, that adrenaline burst that moves you to kind of do something you hope is impressive for the lady of your dreams. And in an instant, Jacob goes up to the stone, puts all his might into it, and in a Samson-like moment, moves it out of the way. And then says, come on, come on, come on. And uh, ushers in Rachel's sheep and, and leads them all to water. So he meets the neighbors of Nahor. He meets this lovely shepherdess. And this is an incredible moment. And it also parallels, we don't have time to go there, but mark for your own study, Exodus 2, 16 through 22. Another well, another bride-to-be, another covenant son, if you will, Moses. Moses is estranged in the wilderness. You know, similar story. He had all the benefits and luxuries of Egypt, a prince in the hot courts of Pharaoh. And then, of course, following the call of God, he enters the wilderness to tend to sheep for like 40 years. While he's out there, he comes upon a well one day and six, no, seven shepherdesses, if that's the word, the plural of shepherdess, all daughters of Jethro, his future father-in-law, show up. And bad guys are there too. And again, he's like, yeah, get out of here, bad guys. Chases away the uh, antagonistic shepherds. And then he leads all of the ladies' sheeps to water. And then he meets Jethro. Jethro says, hey, here's my uh, daughter Zipporah. And uh, they get married and so forth. And that is the account of Moses' backstory before he goes back to Egypt. Another calling of God by a covenant son of wilderness provision at a well and a bride provided by God's sovereign hand. Are we seeing a pattern here? Now, more evidence 
of God's keeping presence and Jacob's changed heart continues in his reaction. What we have here developing is a covenant family reunion. Why the tears, you ask? Why this elation and why this relief? Why this joy? Why this overwhelming emotional reaction? Well, I submit in part it's because Jacob's heart is now tuned to appreciate and to love the covenant. And this is the family aspect of it. Jacob came near, rolled the stone away, and then verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. He's overcome with emotion. He's crying because he has realized with his changed heart the keeping presence and power and steadfast love of the Lord has led him, an unlikely one-time sinner schemer, 400-mile journey to meet in this extraordinary set of circumstances, his bride-to-be, a lovely shepherdess, boom, showing up at the well one day, and it is overwhelming him. These tears, I submit, are tears of joy, tears of overwhelming acknowledgement of God's plans and purposes, and in a sense, I think you can say, worship to the Lord. Thankfulness that God has led him and has prospered his journey. Verse 12, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. This is a covenant family reunion. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran out to meet him, embraced him, and kissed him, and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Jacob's emotion and the family welcome illustrate Jacob's repentance. Let me make an application. We've mentioned this before, but contrast this to the former Jacob, scheming to get what he wanted, stealing the covenant blessing. Contrast this to Esau. Esau, a murderous heart towards his brother, and uh, getting his bride from the people all around and searching for whatever the cultural norm was to find, instead of care, care to the word of God, just going with his impulses and his emotions and his fleshly preferences. Contrast Jacob to Laban, as we will see later in the text. Jacob met his match. This is a schemer, schemer, Laban, his father-in-law. And there's a little bit of poetic justice that Jacob receives as Laban uh, convinces him, basically, uh, you know, leverages the situation to get 14 years of free labor out of the guy. Nevertheless, Jacob, we see a changed man. What does he do? He negotiates honestly and lawfully and generously a seven-year covenant to marry this gal. This is a man of growing character. He's not sneaking and stealing and, and conniving. He's willing to be sacrificially obedient to the law of God. He's a changed man. And then <clears throat> he ends up even working seven years more. And what does verse 20 tell us? Jacob served seven years for Rachel, but they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. There's a relationship between your heart and the hardship you're called to endure. Because Jacob's heart was connected to the purposes of God, and he loved this lady, you know, and all that she represented so much. There was a connection between that and the hardship, the sacrifice he was called to endure. If you love your Lord Jesus Christ so much, if you love him enough, that's proportional to your endurance and perseverance. People ask, you know, we were praying for a family, a couple families, I think, Christian missionaries who are, were abducted recently in Haiti. We're praying for their release. Um, we hear these stories of people who are called to give their life and martyrdom in areas of the Middle East where it can cost you your neck if you don't confess the Shahada and convert superficially to Islam, deny Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we ask ourselves, how could I endure that kind of persecution? And the answer is, if you love Jesus. Yeah, Jacob loved Rachel, and so the years, the seven years of labor seemed a few days. If you love Jesus, you can endure the hardship that he's called you to go through. So if you want to prepare for persecution in a way and to stand in any challenge, really, however it presents yourself, pay attention to your soul and how much you appreciate the covenant bond 
that our Lord Jesus has established with you. And nurture that relationship by coming regularly to fellowship and commune at his table to worship and to acknowledge that great thing that he has done to save you from your sin as you gather with God's people weekly. And in so doing, this heart of growing love for your Lord and Savior will give you the grace to endure the hardship along the way. And you notice by contrast, there's lots of people out there who want the blessings and benefits of covenant without following God's word. This is the old Jacob way. This is the Esau way. This is the Laban way. This is the Western culture depravity apostate way. I want the blessings and benefits of marriage without the duty and devotion to the word of God and its exclusive covenant based on Christ's terms, according to how he has designed and arranged it, and according to the essence of that covenant, which represents the relationship with, uh, between Jesus Christ and his bride and the sacrificial love and so forth and that devotion that is required. All these things pertain. And we see this evidence of Jacob's changed heart even in our text today. God's keeping presence is witnessed in where Jacob travels, who he meets, and finally, we'll touch on this but briefly, but pick up on a future sermon, what he prefigures. For this last reference, would you turn with me to John chapter 4? The title of our sermon is Woman at the Well. And as I mentioned, that should trigger an association with the New Testament. And of course, this association is recorded in John's Gospel at the very beginning. For this final point, I'm indebted to a podcast I listen to, which is just awesome, um, in this regard, regard called Reformed Forum. They pointed out several things I'm passing along to you today, so I just uh, really appreciate that resource. What Jacob prefigures. Here's one thing I picked up from that study. Jacob is a servant bridegroom. <clears throat> we mentioned that Jacob doesn't have two pennies to his name, so to speak, and so what does he have to offer as a dowry price? Well, verse 15, Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? So let's negotiate, basically. You want my daughter in marriage? I, you know, let's work out an understanding. You don't have any you know, wealth. You're not coming with Abraham's servant with a bunch of camels and gold and rings and so forth to grace my daughter with. So what can you provide? Um, Jacob, or, uh, Jacob loves Rachel, loved Rachel, verse 18, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. In this, Jacob prefigures a servant bridegroom. And this is what I picked up and I really appreciate. And in, in here is a type and a foreshadowing of Christ. Christ also, Jesus, is a servant bridegroom. Now, he wasn't a servant bridegroom in the sense that he didn't have a dowry with which to exchange his bride. He was a servant in that the dowry that he paid to procure his bride was his own life. Jesus came in service of the Father's plan for the gospel to take on flesh. In the incarnation, he descended, as it were, that staircase. He is the staircase that Jacob saw. And when his feet touched earth, they touched earth through the womb of the Virgin Mary as a tiny baby to assume the servant's role, the suffering servant's role that the prophet in Isaiah 53 had proclaimed would be the Messiah's calling and purpose to what? Secure for himself a bride in service to the plan of God to die as a ransom for many, to give his own precious blood as the dowry for his church, Jesus Christ became the ultimate servant bridegroom. Jacob prefigures this in shadow form of old. <clears throat> Having no dowry, Jacob, he offers himself in service to Laban just as Jesus Christ offers himself as the sacrifice to procure, to secure his bride. Jacob exchanged his 14 years for, his for Laban's daughter's hand in marriage. Jesus exchanged his life on Calvary for your hand, if you're a believer in this room, so to speak, in marriage. Now there's a picture of this in individual in particular call that's just amazing. And yes, it's another woman, and again, it's at a well. John 4, 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And already you can see the parallels, can you not? A well, the wellspring of living water. Jesus is going to identify himself as a source of living water. A woman, an unlikely bride candidate, if you will. A sinner, an outcast, a Samaritan, ethnically despised. All these factors are important. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Recognizing the socio-ethnic distinction. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, we find parenthetically in the text. Verse 10, Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This woman is coming. So this is the Lord revealing himself, the word made flesh. Soon this place might as well be named Beer Laha Roy, the well of the living God who sees me, because Jesus sees right into the heart of this woman, and she is meeting the source of living water at Jacob's well. It's incredible. The woman, verse 11, said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never will be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may, will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. More on that story in future messages. Suffice it to say for now that God's keeping presence is witnessed in what Jacob prefigures. We have in this foreshadowing moment in Genesis 29, a servant bridegroom with a well appointment with a lady who would become his bride. Similarly, in John 4, 7, 15, can you not relate to this woman at the well? Were you not an outcast in your sin? Were you not one, not of privileged birth, who had no business and fellowship with the holy and almighty God? Were you not one justly banished by, from his presence, an outcast, because you had fallen short of his glory and breaking his law and your sin over and over again? And then where did the Lord meet you? Be'er Laharoi, the well of the living God who sees me in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you relate to the woman at the well? If you can, you are likely a believer and have realized his salvation and that Jesus Christ is the wellspring of living water unto eternal life in the wilderness of your sin. If you can't, come to the well of living water. Repent of your cisterns, broken, tepid, moldy, gathering bacteria, which is all the world has to offer you by way of drinking water, by the way. Repent of those. And find yourself in the shoes of this woman and go to Jesus Christ and say, Dear Jesus, I am a sinner, but I trust that you died for me. Would you be my source of living water that I might dwell with you forever? This is an unlikely bride, a Samaritan woman. Much like Leah, the unlikely bride, who was not desirable to look at, Nevertheless, Jesus, the true covenant son, descended heaven's stairway in the incarnation as a servant of the Father's plan of salvation to give life for his bride, the church, you and I, if you are in him today. We were outcasts, we were sinners, spiritually Samaritans, if you will. But now, at the wellspring of salvation in Jesus Christ, we have witnessed our own hope of eternal life because Jesus has met us. I pray that you have met him. If not, I pray that you would. Let us close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we've had today to explore your holy word and the beautiful connections, Lord, that we see woven through the text that remind us of your power to save. For those in the hearing of this message today, if they have not found themselves broken at the wellspring of living water, confess and repented, place their faith in Christ, I pray that they would not go one more day without turning from their sin and turning to Christ. For those of us, Lord, who can point back to that moment when our heart was changed, one-time schemers now saved, looking to Jesus Christ, let these words encourage us today to embrace the calling that we have, that you and your keeping presence 
as witness in our salvation and in the glories of Scripture and the legacy of those who've gone before will prepare us for the trials and difficulties and challenges that you have ordained we walk through. Lord, give us this kind of faith as we cling to you. And may we grow in our appreciation and love of the covenant. And by that means to stand all the stronger, bolder, and taking one faithful step in front of the other in service of our great King Messiah and our servant bridegroom Jesus Christ, who stooped low to ransom and redeem the undeserving sinners such as we are. To his great name, we offer our praise and thanks and close this prayer in this service in the name of Jesus. Amen.